Morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Hey, I had a, a wonderful letter sent to us uh, this week, and I asked Colleen to highlight it for me, and I would read excerpts, uh, but instead, as I looked over it, I just realized that, no, we're going to read all of it. Uh, this is a letter from Margot Ryan, uh, wife of uh, Ridge Ryan, who went home to be with the Lord, our founding pastor, and she sent this to us this week. She says, uh, Dear Pastor Neil and Coast Bible Church family, a passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 certainly applies to my feelings regarding the support you have given to me and my family over the past month since my dear Ridge went home to be with his Lord and Savior. Since Ridge taught me well, I will put in italics the special meaning of a Greek word in the text. It reads as follows, quote, We are bound, obligated, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith groweth exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that, our, so that we ourselves glory in you. It is obvious that you have continued to be taught well in the Word of God, which produces that love and care for one another and for those who are in need of such a special touch of comfort. On behalf of not only myself, but also my family, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for preparing so wholeheartedly for the details of the memorial service. What an extra special touch it was to view the unveiling of the new outdoor memorial, courtesy of the leftover tree stump. I will look forward to seeing it on future visits. Interestingly, one lady was present at the memorial service who attended the very first Coast Bible Church service in our living room, along with her husband and two children. Her husband, who is now with the Lord, spoke to Ridge about her after a few weeks and said that he didn't think she understood the gospel. Ridge had the privilege of explaining it to her, and the Holy Spirit did the rest. When the new building was built, this building, now she was in line on the first Sunday of occupancy to be baptized. She asked the people in front of her if they minded if she went first. Thus, Carolyn Lee was the earliest new believer at Coast Bible Church and the earliest one baptized in the new baptistry. May God continue to bless and use you in the coming days until he returns, Margot Ryan and family. That's to you and uh, to all those who helped make that service so special. And what a privilege it has been to uh, honor our founding pastor, his family, uh, honor the Lord for his life, honor his wife and children. Uh, it was a great day, and uh, Margot was deeply touched. I want to thank you all for... Uh, uh, just your kindness to the family. And as we see Margot and maybe the Halcombs come back from time to time, be sure to greet them. Let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You, Lord, because this is Your day. And we want to just honor You in it. We want to experience You today. As the song we just uh, heard said, we want You, Lord, to be our everything. We want You to be on the tip of our tongue. We want You to be the first thought in our minds. And today, Lord, we want You to teach us, to speak to us by Your Holy Spirit through Your Word. We pray that You would do this, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you'll notice uh, a little extra uh, handout today. We're going to uh, skip some of the traditional PowerPoint and go to uh, a little bit more of a, a heavier handout today because I want to go through a number of different Bible texts. The topic of my message today is, is on the topic of honor. And uh, 
Honor's been something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, in fact, uh, as my son uh, Bennett, he's he's growing up, and he's uh, we're 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 dealing right now with a lot of him fighting with his sister Mallory. Um, anybody? Can you relate with that? Okay, a few of you. Yes, Glenn. Did 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 uh, Scott and Jeff ever fight a little bit? Just a little. Okay. <laughs> when they were awake was his answer. Uh, my son is fighting with Mallory all the time. Bennett and Mallory are just, just, just squabbling all the time. Reminds me of me and my sister. And lately, one of the, the latest things that I've been doing to try and remedy this is I, I walk down to him and I, I grab him. I, I, I kind of set him in front of me. Did I just lose the mic? I set him in front of me and I, I, get, I kneel down and I put my hand on his heart and I look him in the eye and I say, you're a man of honor. You're a man of honor. This isn't who you are. Fighting with Mallory is not who you are. You're a man of honor. And I've been doing this now for about a month. And uh, you might be wondering, well, you know, why would you say that to him? There's many things you could say to him. Uh, you could discipline him. You could... Uh, you know, you could talk about what he's doing wrong, um, but I'm I'm a firm believer that one of the uh, most unused techniques in parenting is to remind the child of who they are, not what they've done done wrong, but who they are as a member of your family, as a person who loves the Lord. And I believe my son loves the Lord. I already see it in him. God, when He looks at you and me, and we do wrong, it's as if He comes down to us, puts His hand on our heart and says, wait a minute, you're a man of honor. You're a woman of honor. And what you're doing here is not right. We see this all over the Scripture. And I want to read today a number of Scriptures. We're going to go very topically today. But I want to read today a number of Scriptures that demonstrate that God looks upon you and sees someone who He wishes to honor. Someone who He's created to be honorable. The title of my message today is, You were designed for honor, but are you destined for it? You are designed for honor, but are you destined for it? Take a look at Psalm, and it's on your, listen on your outline there. Psalm chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. David writes this, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air that pass through uh, the paths of the sea. And the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Excuse me. When God looks upon you and me, He sees His creation that He created to be honorable. He says it right there as much. Now we look at that passage and we think, wasn't that related to Jesus? No. In the original context, the psalmist was speaking about you and me. And only later is it applied to Christ, who was the perfect God-man. But in that context, David is crying out to God and saying, who am I that you even look upon me? 
And the Lord responds to him and says, no, 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 I've crowned you with glory and honor. You, men and women, are the crowning achievement of creation. Have you thought about that? You are God's crowning achievement. You are the highest in creation. God has created us with a measure of honor. You've crowned Him with glory and honor. He says you put all things under His feet to have dominion. But of course, while we were created that way, we lost it, didn't we? We lost it in Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the the honor that we were created with, Adam and Eve, they, they lost it. They tossed it aside. They sinned and they fell. And we all fell in Adam. And we've lost a measure of that honor. And it's been ever since that we've been trying to gain it back. And of course, as you go through the story of Scripture, the way we gain it back is through Christ. He came to earth and He wrapped Himself in what? Human flesh. Symbolizing what God wanted to do all along with mankind. He sent Jesus Christ to us in human flesh to symbolize, no, I want you to follow this path. Not the path of Adam. The path I had for you. Jesus came to restore, to restore us to a place of honor that God has designed for us all along. To restore us to the gift of everlasting life. And I use the word restore very intentionally. Because Jesus came to offer humanity a full restoration of what God originally designed mankind to be. On your outline, a few things that He designed us to be. Number one, to serve and commune with God. On your outline there. To serve and commune with God. Secondly, to have dominion, control over creation. You know, so often today we we are reading about governments that institute policies that put man underneath creation. Just the opposite is the case in Scripture. I'm not suggesting that man is not to take care of creation. He is. We are to take care of creation. But governments that institute policies that say that creation comes before man are are not biblical. Because in the Scriptures, man is the one who is to have dominion over creation. That doesn't mean he pollutes it. That doesn't mean he ruins it. But man is to be the one who looks upon creation and uses it wisely but uses it because it's for him to use. It's his resources to use. That's the story of Scripture. Thirdly, to be without sin. Fourth, to enjoy everlasting life. Fifth, to be crowned with glory and honor. That's what you were made to be. That's what you were made to be. That's what Adam was made to be. And had he not sinned, He was serving and communing with God in the garden. He was having dominion over creation. He was without sin prior to the fall. He even would have enjoyed everlasting life based on the tree of life in the garden. And he was certainly crowned with glory and honor. That's what God designed him to be. And he fell from that. That's what you and I were made to be. And Paul spilled much, much ink on this topic. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul says, you are a new creation. Brand new. Be what you're meant to be. 
He goes on to say in Romans, our old man was crucified with him in Romans 6, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has what? Dominion, control over him. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, think to yourself, I am dead indeed to sin, but I am alive to God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. So let me say it again. God has designed you to serve and commune with Him, to have dominion over creation, to be without sin, to enjoy everlasting life, to be crowned with glory and honor, and you might think to yourself, well, that's, you're, you're talking, Neil, about honor that we receive, that God designed us for honor. Isn't that kind of selfish? Isn't that kind of like a self-serving? I mean, we sang a lot of songs today. I, I told the, the worship team ahead of time we're going to be doing a topic on honor. And most all the songs that we sang today were regarding the honor of the Lord, and rightly so. We're to honor the Lord. And so here we're talking about uh, the topic of honor, but in this case we're talking about honoring us, God's creation. And you might think, isn't that selfish? Isn't that a little bit not quite right with Scripture? I always wrestled with that question until I had a a, a child. Um, Up until the point of having children, I always thought, yeah, this this idea of the Lord honoring me or me receiving honor, that, that sounds a little bit off. But then I had a child, and I realized when I saw Bennett and later Mallory, and I looked upon them and I realized all I want for them is the best. You know what? I looked upon my kids and I went, all I want is for these two children of mine to be the best they can be. I want to love them. I want to give them what they need to succeed in life. I want to honor them. I want to build them up. I want to give them every opportunity to be a great man or woman of God. You know, that human earthly father's feeling toward his children is the same way God feels about you. He looks at you and he says, I want you to have everything. I want you to experience joy and peace. I want you to have everything you need in life and I'm going to do whatever it takes to give it to you. He sent Christ. You see, God, from, from Adam to the Psalms to Christ, we see Him making the effort to honor you, to lift you up, to say, be who I designed you to be. It's not a selfish matter for us to say that the Lord wants to lift us up to honor. He does, just like earthly fathers and mothers want to lift up their children. Of course, the expectations sometimes of earthly fathers and mothers aren't always the right expectations. Sometimes, as an earthly father, I can look, them up, I can look upon my kids and want something that's not good for them. Maybe I can want something that's not right for them, that's not best for them. But not, that's not the case with our Heavenly Father. When He looks upon us, His expectations of us, His hopes for us, they're perfect. They're perfect hopes. They're perfect expectations. And so when He says that He wishes to honor you, when He says that He wants you to be the crown and the glory of creation, He means it. It's an expectation that's grounded in in reality. 
in truth. You were designed for honor to be the person God wishes you to be. To live up to the potential that the Holy Spirit has for you. To achieve all that God would have you do on this earth. You were designed for honor. I was designed for honor. Do you believe that? David, in in Psalm 8, he asked, O God, what is man that you're mindful of him? And God answered and said, I'm going to send Jesus to prove to you how much man means to me. To restore that lost glory, honor. To restore our life. Now, I think we've made the case that we were designed for honor. That much is clear from Scripture. But that's only half of this message title. You were designed for honor, yes, we can see that. But the last part of it is the question. And it is, are you destined for it? Are you destined for it? The truth is, when this life is over, there will be varying degrees of honor that Christ will give to believers dependent upon their earthly life. There will be varying degrees of honor. We see this all over Scripture. One of the most one of the clearest passages of all is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 11. Paul writes this. He says, "For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus." Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver, or precious stones, wood, hay and straw, each one's work, earthly work, will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. I I get many comments as I refer to this verse with respect to honor in, in the kingdom of God or future rewards. And I get many people who really try to downplay the concept of, of heavenly rewards or heavenly honor. And they say, well, that passage in context just refers to uh, ministers and to teachers and to pastors. And they get this from verse 11 where it says, uh, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And it, and it does seem in the context that it's in reference primarily to those who are teachers or leaders in the church. But by extension, there's no question that this passage includes every single Christian. Because every single Christian has a part in ministering, in leading, in teaching their own family about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everyone who's laying a foundation, whether it's up here on a pulpit, or whether it's in your home, or whether it's at work, wherever it is, the foundation that you're laying, you can't lay a new one. All you can do is build upon what Christ has done. And if anyone builds on this foundation with gold silver, precious stones, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Now what is this day? The day Paul speaks of in verse 13 is none other than the day of judgment. The day of the judgment seat of Christ. In the New Testament it's called the Bema seat judgment. I was, I, I've said this before, but I remember driving one of, uh, one of the most you know, really esteemed theologians of the past century, Earl Rodmacher. He, he's done such great work over the years. And I was driving to the airport. And he's, he's an older man. He, he's into his 90s now. And he doesn't have much more time left on this earth. But as I was driving him to the airport, I asked him, I said, Dr. Rodmacher, tell me, give me, give me one thing that you would have me do as, as a young pastor. What, what's the one 
component of Scripture that you would say to me that it needs to be emphasized more in the church today? And he thought about it a minute and he looked at me and he said, preach the Bema. Preach the Bema. The Bema seat. What is the Bema seat? In ancient Greece, the Bema seat was the place where a judge would bestow honor upon those who had performed well in an athletic contest. And Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 3. He says there will be some believers who come to the Bema seat, who, who, who leave this life, who go to heaven, and they stand before Christ. There will be some believers who go to that day, the Bema seat judgment, with reward awaiting them. But he's equally clear that there will be other believers who go to that day and walk away with little to no reward. Does that mean that they're going to hell? No, far from it. Far from it. J. Hampton Keithley writes, it's on your uh, outline there, it is a reward seat and portrays a time of rewards or loss of rewards following examination. But it is not a time of punishment where believers are judged for their sins. Such would be inconsistent with the finished work of Christ on the cross because He totally paid the penalty for our sins. Let's be very clear. This judgment that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 3 is only a judgment for Christians. It is only an examination of a Christian's life work. And it is only for the purpose of establishing eternal rewards and honor. The judgment for non-Christians will come at a later time. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. You can read about it at the end of Revelation. But this, this is a separate judgment just for believers. The reality of the Bema, get this, the, the reality of the Bema means that means that we've been designed for honor. The reality of the Bema means that we are going to be situated before Jesus. He's going to look at us and He's going to say, were you honorable in this life? Not all Christians will be destined for that honor. In fact, 1 John 2.28 indicates that some Christians will be ashamed. Notice what he says. John writes, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence, and get this, not be ashamed before Him at His coming. So some Christians will go to the Bema and they will be rewarded. And other Christians will go to the Bema and they will be ashamed. Of course, given, given what, we, what else we know about Scripture that, and, and the eternal state, that there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, that shame will be but for a time. Because we know that the, the, the testimony of the kingdom of God is a place of joy and of happiness. But there will be a moment. There will be a moment at the Bema or some Christians will be rewarded, eternally given greater honor. I think of the parable of the talents and the, and the minas. You know, you, you, you use these ten talents and you, you invested them well and, and now you'll be over ten cities, Jesus says. But for those that took their talent and, and, and buried it in the ground, there's a loss of reward. Some of us will be honored and some of us will be ashamed. And I want to ask the question, how, how do I receive honor at the Bema Seat? If I am a person of honor, if God created me to be a person of honor, to receive honor, to be rewarded on the last day, how can I maintain this design? How can I hold on to what He's designed me to be? 
I want to list three things, simple things, that you can do to prepare for the Bema, to receive honor at the Bema seat. Number one, I want to say that I want to give you two negatives and then one positive example. Number one, just showing up isn't good enough. Just showing up isn't good enough. The Christian life is not a checklist of to-dos. Just showing up isn't good enough. The Christian life is not a checklist of to-dos. There's a man by the name of Demas in the New Testament. And Demas was a man who followed Paul around wherever he went. Uh, He was attending, if you will. He was in attendance uh, during Paul's missionary travels. And he was helping from time to time. He was with Paul. He was a companion of Paul. We read that in Philemon 1. It says, Epaphras, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow laborers. So there we have Demas. He's mentioned again in Colossians 4, uh, verse 14. And Paul uh, had spoken highly of all these men who had, and, and women who had especially helped him in the ministry. But then just before Paul dies, he writes 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he has one final comment about this man, Demas. And he writes in verse 9 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. That's it. That's the last mention of Demas in the New Testament. You say, well, what happened to him? We don't know. There's really not enough information to say what happened to Demas. Paul doesn't go into great details. Woodrow Kroll writes this. He says, it's not likely that Demas abandoned the faith. Paul doesn't indicate that his friend fell into some sort of sin. There's no hint that Demas did anything illegal or immoral or wrong. He was just diverted to something of lesser eternal importance. Remember, Satan doesn't have to defeat you he only has to divert you. I'll say that last part again for your outlines. Remember, Satan doesn't have to defeat you. He only has to divert you. As clear as I can say, let me remind us that the Christian life is not about attendance. It's, it's, it's not about a, a warm body in the pew on a Sunday morning. The Christian life is about meaningful engagement and participation. And without that intentionality, distractions are likely to come. Demas was likely a man who, I mean, he followed Paul around wherever he went. And then at the very end, it became evident that all he was was just a warm body following Paul around. At the end of the day, the intentionality of his faith was just not there. And he got distracted, he got sidetracked. And he left Paul because he loved this present world. And so I say to you, one of the first things that you can keep in mind as you prepare for the Bema is know this, that just showing up doesn't cut it. Just putting yourself in the pew on Sunday is not what the Lord is going to look at and say, wow, that was fantastic. You made 48 out of 52 Sundays a year. He's not going to be impressed by that. I think faithfulness in church is important. Don't get me wrong. I would, I would emphasize. I think it's a good thing. But just putting your body in the pew is not what cuts it in the eyes of the Lord. It's to become an active participant in the church. 
It's to become a faithful servant of the Lord. To seek out ministry opportunities. To work diligently for Him. What about a second item that can help us prepare for the Bema? The second item is this. Do not rest and take pride in your former days of faithfulness and spiritual achievements. Do not rest and take pride in your former days of faithfulness and spiritual achievements. Now this, the, the first item I mentioned was more for the, the one who is maybe slacking in the faith or sluggish in the faith. But this item is for those of you out there today who can look at me in the eye and say, well, I, I think I've done a lot in my past for the Lord. I mean, I've, I've, I've served Him. I've, I've taught Bible studies. I've, I've gone on mission trips. Look at all the things that I've done, Neil. Am I ready now? To those who have done good things for the Lord in the past, I would say to you, don't rest on your laurels. Don't look back and say, I think I've done enough. Don't check out. Don't retire. There's not time for retirement. Marianne has told me as much. She says, I'm, I'm never retired. She's continuing to work for the Lord. There's an example of this in Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26, um, beginning in verse 1. There's a story of a man by the name of Uzziah. And Uzziah was a king of Judah. And he was one of the, uh, he was one of the kings that, that went kind of both ways. So all, some of the kings did, did good in the sight of the Lord, and then some of them fell. He kind of experienced both. And take a look at, at verse 1 of, of chapter 26. It says this, Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was just 16 years old at the time, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. And jump down to verse six, or verse excuse me, verse four. And Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, as long as the, as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So there's the opener of what Uzziah did. And then as you continue to read the story, and I encourage you to go home and take a look at it, Uzziah did all these amazing things for the Lord. He fought and overcame pagan nations. He beautified and fortified the, the capital of Jerusalem. He increased the livestock and the farming community. He modernized the weaponry. He, he got his army fortified and ready to go. He did so many good things for the Lord. And then came the end of his life when pride settled in. And he did something that the Lord had forbidden. Notice verse 16. We'll read it to the end. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord. This is a king entering a temple. Only the priest could enter. Entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him. And with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, for the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor, no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn the incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at Uzziah, and there on his forehead he was leprous. And so they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he was also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. 
some 30 years of faithfulness, 30 years plus of faithfulness in King Uzziah's life. And in the end, he rested on his laurels and he looked back and said, I've done, I've done great things. In fact, I've done such mighty things, I'm going to take something that's not mine. I'm going to take a responsibility that's not mine. And he goes into the temple and he proceeds to do something that was forbidden. For a king to do the priest's work was forbidden. There's only one prophet, priest, and king, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one had been given designated jobs in Israel, and he was trespassing. Thirty plus years of faithfulness. One moment of resting on his laurels to be cut off from the house of the Lord. Did Uzziah go to hell? No, that's not what it means. It means he lost his honor. He lost his place of dignity. He went for such a long time and he got to the very end of his road and he quit. He quit early. As many of you know, Zane Hodges, a great, great man, theologian, and friend of Coast Bible Church from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I remember a conversation that Bob Wilkin was recounting to me about his conversations with Zane. And they were talking about finishing well to the end. Finishing well to the end. And Bob was saying to him, well, Zane, what if, what if I lived 80 years and in my last year I, I fell away from the Lord? Would, would, the, Lord, would the Lord honor, would, would the Lord look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant at the end of my days? And Zane said, of course not. Of course he wouldn't do that. He says, the emphasis in Scripture is on finishing. Not just starting, finishing. And that brings me to my third point today. And this is a more positive example. A third point for, finish, for, for doing well at the Bema is this. You can't change how you started, but you can change how you finish. And how you finish is especially important to the Lord. There is perhaps no greater example of this than the Apostle Paul. Few, few, fewer human beings have started their life off worse than him. Known by the name of, of Saul in his earlier days, Saul hated Christians. He persecuted them. He even gave approval to their death. And, and then finally God grabbed hold of him during one of his anti-Christian crusades to Damascus. And, and, and Jesus appeared to Saul and he told him that he had a new mission in life, to be a missionary of Christ. And in his time of preparation and training, Saul's name was changed to Paul an indication that he had a new identity, that he was being restored to what he ought to have been all along, that he was not the same old man, that he was a new creation in Christ, a man designed for honor. And Paul went on to become one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. But even as great as the Apostle Paul, we look upon his life and we read his, script, his writings, the Scriptures, the epistles, and we see a man who was constantly thinking about the Bema. I should say Bema. I've been saying Bema. That's too English of me. Bema in Greek. He's constantly thinking of the Bema. And look, notice what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15. He knew what a grievous sinner he was. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul knew his past. And there were moments in Paul's life where he admitted that he even feared being disqualified. Notice 1 Corinthians 9. But I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Adakimos in Greek. The antithesis of dokimos, which is approved. 
at the Behemoth. He says, I, I was, I've, been, I've been preaching and serving the Lord and doing all that I can because I know that there is a chance that I could be Adakamas, disqualified at the Behemoth, that I could lose my reward if I don't stay the course. As great a man as he was, he was constantly viewing the Behemoth seat. And toward the end of his life, what happened? Was he shaken? Was he shaken in confidence? No, he wasn't. Paul's confidence was not shaken by a poor start in life. Instead, Paul was confident of reward because of how he finished the race. 2 Timothy 4, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved His appearing. You can't change how you started. You can't do it. I don't know how you started. You know how you started. You can't change it. You can't go back and change those teenage years. You can't go back and change what you did in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s. You can't go back. You can't start over. But as you think about what you did in those years and you grow a bit concerned, look at Paul. He killed Christians, consenting to their death, persecuted them, hated, hated Christians. And yet at the end of his life, he said, I am confident that I am finishing well. I'm finishing well. You can't change how you started, but you can change how you finish. And how you finish, how you finish, is especially important to our Lord. I want to read what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples were asking Him a lot about the end of days. And Jesus had some words about those last days to His disciples. He said this, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and they'll kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another. And they'll hate one another. He's talking about Christians, by the way. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will will abound, the love of many will grow cold, including believers. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You say, well, that's... That's a little odd. What do we make of that last verse? But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You know, a lot of, a lot of scholars and Bible teachers, they approach verse 13 and they say, well, see, uh, this is an indication that this demonstrates that you must have perseverance. And if you don't persevere to the end, you're not saved. Or you were never a Christian to begin with. Or maybe you lost your salvation. That's what a lot of Bible teachers would say to you. But of course, the context of the passage speaks nothing of this. Nothing of this. In fact, the context of the passage makes clear that many Christians will betray one another. That many Christians, the the love of many Christians will grow cold. And in fact, the context of the whole passage refers to the fact that many who who are already Christians in that context will either shrink back or will continue on and receive great persecution. And besides, the Scripture is clear 
Justification is by faith, not by works, not by perseverance. So what does Jesus mean by verse 13? What does He mean when He says, He who endures to the end will be saved? Surely it can be said, if you look back at verse 9, surely it can be said that those Christians who were killed for their faith, in verse 9, were executed precisely because they were enduring in their faith. Right? Surely it can be said that those Christians who Jesus says were killed in verse 9 were killed precisely because they were enduring in the faith. So then, what can be said of verse 13 that whoever these people are, they're going to be saved? This comes back, friends, to the New Testament meaning of salvation. Soteria in Greek. In, in our English 21st century minds, we look at it and we always think heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. And the truth of the matter is, soteria or sozo in Greek, it can mean a great deal of things. It can mean heaven or hell. It can mean being sanctified or unsanctified. It can mean being glorified or not glorified. It can mean deliverance or not deliverance. Health or not health. And the context decides. In verse 13, of Matthew 24, Jesus is not talking about heaven or hell. The salvation in verse 13 is not a matter of justification, but a matter of another aspect of salvation, our glorification. Jesus is saying clearly, if you endure to the end, you will receive reward. If you stay the course, you will be given a crown. If you finish well, you will be honored. So be honorable to the end, Jesus says. Be honorable to the end. Many will fall back. Many like Uzziah will go 30 plus years of faithfulness and in the last decade or the last five years or the last year or the last month of their life, they will fall away. And they will forfeit a great deal of reward. Jesus says, He who endures to the end will be saved will be delivered, will be honored, will be rewarded. Be honorable to the end. I want to close with just some, some final thoughts as, as we consider how to get ready for the Bema. Just a couple last um, things to consider. The first is this. When you, when you wake up each day, and, and uh, I, I'm indebted very much to Woodrow Kroll. There's a really good book out, uh, Facing Your Final Job Review. Facing your final job review. I can't. I can't. I don't agree with everything on uh, in the pages here, but just about 99% of it. I think he does an outstanding job of discussing the Bema Seed Judgment, and uh, it's a wonderful book. And and Kroll gives gives two examples that I'm going to give here. And the first is this: begin your day by affirming who you are in Christ. I am designed for honor. Affirming who you are in Christ. The reason why I do this with Bennett every day almost now, I, I walk down, I put my hand on his heart, and I say, you are a man of honor. is because I want him to remember who he is. Do you remember who you are? You are designed to be honored. God created you to be that way. It's not selfish that you seek it. Because your heavenly Father, like your earthly Father, wants what's best for you. And He designed you to be a man or woman of honor. Affirm that to yourself when you wake up. I am a man, I am a woman of honor, and I will live that way. Secondly, 
uh, begin your day by fixing your mind on the Bema Seat of Christ. By fixing your mind on the Bema Seat of Christ. I want to read a, a final passage uh, from Woodrow Kroll's book. He says this. He says, start every day, start every day at the judgment seat of Christ and work backwards. Take everything you do today, every thought you think, every word you say, to the judgment seat to check out its eternal impact. Some people motivate, the, some people motivate, um, some pastors motivate their congregations by beating them over the head and saying, you need to follow the rules. Some pastors, they motivate their churches, some teachers, they motivate their congregation by regurgitating over and over again the do's and the don'ts, what's okay to do and what's not okay, the prohibitions and what's acceptable. And they, and they talk about the do's and the don'ts and the commandments over and over again, and they resort ultimately to law and to fear to motivate their people. I want you to know clearly that while there is an aspect of that in Scripture, there is very much more an aspect of the Bema in Scripture. There's an aspect of seeking reward. Jesus says, don't store your treasures where moths and rust destroy. Put your treasure in heaven where they won't be destroyed. Over and over again in Scripture, it tells you, Jesus says it, Paul says it, Peter says it, John says it. They say, seek reward. Seek it. Look for it. Grab hold of it. Lay hold of the crowns that await you in the kingdom to come. It's not selfish. It's not self-motivated. It's what Scripture tells us to do. And I submit to you that a, a Christian man or woman who is not focused on all the do's and don'ts, but instead, and on the law, but instead is focused on the grace of God and the abundant gifts of God. Not just eternal life, but eternal rewards. That's the Christian who will be more motivated and more focused to be faithful and to stay the course. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time in Your Word. Lord, a little bit of a, of a unique time. We've jumped around from passage to passage, Lord, but we've tried to affirm today Your heart that You wish to honor us, Lord. And that it's not selfish for us to say that. That You wish to reward us like I wish to reward Bennett and Mallory. God, You want what's best for us. And You delight. You smile. You take joy when we do well. And Jesus, I know that on the last day You would love nothing more than for each one of us sitting here today to stand before You and for You to smile at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, let us not be a warm body like Demas. Let us not be a man or woman who goes 30 years and then fails like Uzziah. Let us be like Paul who didn't start particularly well but who finished strong. God, may we finish strong. May You take delight in our finish. And may You reward us on the last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.